Good morning again. If you will find Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles this morning, that's where we're going to spend a few moments preparing for um, our time around the Lord's table. Um, I'm grateful that you're here for this. This is always a special time. I'm always grateful when we get to share and observe this, and I'm even more grateful for it now because through the pandemic, uh, we were not able to be consistent um, with our observance of the Lord's Supper, and, and honestly, it, it was a bit of a challenge even coming back from that, but you hopefully you've noticed uh, over this past year, we've tried, our staff and our deacons have worked really hard to make sure that we reestablish that consistency um, our tradition here is to observe the Lord's Supper uh, once a quarter, four times a year. And so we've uh, been faithful to do that this year. And so today will be our last uh, Lord's Supper together for 2023 as we get ready to move into Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, but since we're only um, less than a couple of weeks away from Thanksgiving, I want us to look in Luke 22 this morning and, and read a portion of Luke's account of that last Passover meal that Jesus shared with the disciples. And I want us to notice some things um, that hopefully will enhance our, our own participation in it, that it will help us to understand and we can just experience what we experience together in the Lord's Supper in just a, a deeper way. Um, so if you'll read with me, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, we'll read verses 14 through 20. Luke writes and says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Like I said, we're approaching Thanksgiving. And, you know, I, I started thinking about how Jesus, at this supper with his disciples, that before they drank the cup and before they ate the bread, that it says that Jesus stopped and gave thanks. And how at Thanksgiving, even people who don't give thanks, give thanks, <laughs> right? Even people who don't think about it on a regular basis, the, fo the folks who go about their days. Now, many of us um, have created a discipline of giving thanks to God that when every time we sit down at a meal, it's just a, a natural response for us to stop before we eat, to pray, 
and to recognize that everything we have is from God and to express our gratitude to him for it. And for many of us, that's a regular thing. Maybe for some of us, that's not a discipline. Maybe sometimes we do it, but not always. And that's something that we want to be more disciplined in. And then there are some folks who, would, who just honestly never think about it. Um, unless it's a meal like Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so most folks, unless you were just... Um, uh, atheistic or unless you just have a, a completely non-faith approach to Thanksgiving, most families, before they share in their Thanksgiving dinner, somebody's going to pray. Somebody is going to return and, and give thanks, say a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. Because, why? Because that's what Thanksgiving is all about. That, that's the purpose of why that celebration is instituted. Because we we are a, a people who lack gratitude sometimes. And we need a, a day set aside sometimes in the, in the midst of a crazy, busy, full life that we can just stop and slow down and be with the people we care about and say, and just reflect on how grateful we really are, even, even if we struggle to express it on a regular basis. Luke in his gospel, along with Matthew and Mark, they're careful to put that detail. All three of the gospel writers are consistent in their story to say that before Jesus shared the wine and before he shared the bread with his disciples, that he stopped and and prayed to the Father and gave thanks. And I don't know if that's anything. I feel like that's a part of the text that we just kind of read over. But if we just stop and Stop there for a minute and let our brains imagine. Can you imagine sitting at a table with Jesus and hearing the Son, who is the second person of the Trinity, the triune God, say a, and offer a prayer of thanksgiving to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. God, the divine, giving thanks to the divine, I don't think there's ever been a blessing or a prayer of thanks that could be more powerful than the son giving thanks to the father. Um, And this is not the only place in scripture where it's recorded that Jesus said a prayer of thanks to the father. Um, I'm going to give you some references. If you're a note taker, you can write them down. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but maybe you'll go back and revisit these later. Um, But there are other occasions um, in the Gospels where a prayer like this is is recorded from Jesus. Matthew 11.25 and Luke 10.21 both account the same instance where Jesus is praying um, after he has spoken about the, the rejection of the people, how the people have rejected him and they've not recognized him as Messiah. He prays a prayer thanking the Father that the kingdom is being shown to the humble and and hidden from the pious, hidden from the proud. He said, Father, thank you that 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 your kingdom is being seen by those that that it's for and for the ones who have rejected, the ones who are arrogant and pious. That it, it's hidden from them. And he prays this prayer of thanksgiving to the Father for the fact that the kingdom is being revealed. In Matthew 15, 36 and Mark 8, 6 is in the account of the feeding of the 4,000. 
And in that, before Jesus takes the bread and the fish and prays over it, and multiply, or before he multiplies it and feeds everyone, it says that he stopped and he gave thanks. He, he prayed over that food. In John 6, verse 11, he prays the same thing, except it's a different instance where he feeds the 5,000 rather than what the other gospel writers account for the 4,000. Those are two different miracles. And in John 6, 11, it says that he, he gave thanks. He prayed and he thanked the Father, and then he began to multiply and distribute the food. And then in John chapter 11... In verse 41, it says that Jesus stops and prays a prayer of thanks to the Father before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And again, that may be a part that is easy for us in that story to read over. But Jesus, before he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he prays a prayer to the Father and says, Father, you know what he says? He says, thank you for hearing me. Thank you that you've heard me and thank you that right now in the presence of all these people who are hearing me and seeing me, you're going to be glorified. So in all those other occasions and then we come to Luke 22 and the account of the other gospel writers with this last Passover meal he shares with them, he prays a prayer of thanks. Um, gratitude is lacking in American culture, isn't it? Um, how many of us maybe even complain in our own home <laughs> that people just aren't grateful, right? We can point fingers at one another and say, wow, you're just, you, you're just not grateful for things that we do. Parents can say that to kids. Kids can sometimes say that to our parents. It's, it, it, those are conversations that we have a lot. And in day-to-day life in American culture, Gratitude isn't always something that we pay attention to. But in, in this first century Jewish culture, it was a big deal. And as a part of the Passover celebration and as a part of the Passover meal, prayers of thanks and gratitude were, were prominent. Um, Jewish families taught their children from very young ages to recite prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers of gratitude to God. And so when we think about the men that were gathered there around that table with Jesus, they would have heard and known the the prayers of thanksgiving that they had been taught and heard their families every time, every year when their families would celebrate Passover, they would hear these prayers. They would know these prayers because they they would be taught them. They would memorize them. And they would share in these prayers of thanksgiving and praise to God in gratitude. It was, it was a huge part of that culture. And so when we observe the Lord's Supper, when we gather around this table together as a family, um, we should come with a heart of gratitude. We should come with a heart of thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's almost similar to how we will gather in a couple of weeks and all of our family on a specific time, we will all come together and sit around a table and we will all express and pray our gratitude to God. Every time we as a church come around the Lord's table, that should be our same heart. 
that we've come to express gratitude. And so here's um, my first point this morning. Communion is an expression of gratitude to God. Just very simple. It's more than a ritual. It's more than just something that we do because we're supposed to. It's more than just obedience. It is about obedience. It is about um, all of those things. But at the very heart of what we experience together in, in the Lord's Supper and Communion, what should be common in everyone is this heart of gratitude, is an attitude, a, a, a thankfulness for everything that God has done. As I was studying this week and preparing, I found some interesting things about the Passover meal that I'm pretty sure most of us probably don't know or aren't familiar with. And I was even learning things over the past couple of weeks myself that I want to share with you this morning. We read of, of Jesus sharing this meal with his disciples and, and having the, the bread and the cup. What you may not know is that there was not only one cup of wine that was a part of the traditional Jewish Passover meal. There's actually four. There are actually four cups of wine that when you read, there, there's 15, I believe I'm correct. There are 15 different parts of a Passover meal. And, and through some of those involve prayer, they involve conversation, they involve teaching, they involve the eating of specific foods that are symbolic of different things, and God instituted all those things. But there are actually four cups of wine that are a part of a Passover meal. And each cup, as it's shared by everyone at the table, it represents different things. Uh, because, see, a Passover meal was not like our Thanksgiving meal where we, everybody gorges and eats for 30 minutes and then they go watch football. Um, the Passover meal was, a, was a, an event that, that took hours. It was slow. It was deliberate. It was thoughtful. And so it would last several hours and there would be scripture readings. There would be prayers. There would all scattered throughout. But throughout... There are these four different cups of wine that are used and observed. And each one of those four cups represent four promises in the book of Exodus. I'm going to show you in chapter 6 of Exodus. God makes promises to Israel as, as he sent Moses to, into Egypt. And we know that that's what the Passover was a celebration of. God delivering the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. When Moses initially went to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go, Pharaoh's answer was, no, I won't. And so discouraged, and then, he, and then he began to be even harsher on the Hebrews and discouraged, God went back to, Moses went back to God and said, what, you know, why is this happening? And God then makes promises to Moses. And, and these are found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And there are four specific promises that God made. And these four cups of wine that are placed within different times and places in the Passover feast, each cup represents one of these four promises. And I want to show them to you. Beginning in verse 6. This is what God says. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out, promise number one, from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery, promise number two. I will redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. That's promise number three. I will redeem you. And then verse seven, I will take you as my people. Promise number four. And I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. And so there's a beautiful symbolism in these four cups that are shared throughout the feast. And they represent each one in order represents each of these four promises that God gives to Moses before he delivers the people. So you say, well, how does that fit into what Jesus does with his disciples in Luke 22? So I want to show you. If we look back and we see verse 17 in Luke 22, it says that then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. There's going to be another cup that Jesus uses in verse 20. But the cup in verse 20 is different than the cup in verse 17. The cup here that we see in verse 17 is the first of those four cups that would have been a part of that Passover meal. And the first cup, each one has an identity and is known for a specific thing. The first cup in the sequence is called the cup of blessing. And this is what Jesus is sharing with the disciples in verse 17. It would have involved the father or the the head of the table uh, leading in a specific prayer of blessing and thanksgiving over the cup. And this is what Jesus does. He prays this prayer, he gives thanks, and then they pass this first cup around. Now then when we go to verse 20, we see Luke mention a cup again, but this one is, is different. Verse 20, in the same way he also took the cup after supper... And said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's interesting that most scholars believe that this cup is different than the cup in verse 17. This would have been the third cup of the four in the sequence of events. The third cup was the cup that was taken and passed and shared after the main meal. And you know what the name of the third cup was? The third cup is the cup of redemption. This is the cup that goes, you remember the four promises in Exodus 6. The third promise in that sequence was I will redeem you. So the third cup was the cup of redemption. And so what Jesus did, this is so powerful, y'all. What Jesus did was he took the cup that for years and years and years was known as the cup of redemption and he redefined what that redemption meant from them. He said, no longer, it's not redemption from slavery. It's not redemption from, it's, it's redemption from sin forever because I am the one that is redeeming you and it's my blood. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. In that moment, Jesus was redefining what that third cup represented. It's a redemption that that will come from now on. It will come through my blood. 
So every part of the meal had a meaning. And so you can imagine the 12 as they were sitting with Jesus. They were familiar with all of these elements. And, and, and as they went through, when Jesus gets to this part and he begins to redefine what does the cup represent here and what does the bread represent here, you can imagine the power of, of that moment. Because they were raised to know the story. They were raised to know the story of deliverance and freedom from Egypt. But now Jesus was saying, now when you celebrate this, you're going to celebrate a different kind of freedom. You're going to celebrate a different kind of deliverance. And it will be a deliverance and a freedom that I will bring to you through my blood and through my broken body. Because Jesus is approaching the cross now and you know in those last moments with them, he had that on his mind. He knew what was coming. He knew the agony. He knew the pain that he was going to be enduring. But I think it's, it's so profound and powerful that even as he's sharing these elements and trying to, trying to share with them how those were going to change, from that point forward, every time they shared this meal, it was going to represent something completely different. But even in the midst of that, as he took that cup and he took that bread and he was about to redefine what it would mean for them, he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Holding a cup of wine that would represent the blood that he was just hours away from shedding. And breaking bread that would represent his body hours from then. He in his full humanness, dreading the pain, Dreading the suffering. Even going into the garden, praying a prayer to the Father. Is there any way that this cup can pass from me? Is there any way that we can accomplish what has to be done without this? And so you say, well, was Jesus thanking God for the suffering? Was Jesus thanking the Father that he was going to be enduring suffering? Well, that would be really hard. That would be really hard for us, especially in our humanity, to, to thank God for suffering, especially suffering that we see coming that we've not experienced yet. That, it, it's hard enough to, to thank him when we can even see the benefits of past suffering. Sometimes that's difficult. But to see suffering coming ahead, that would be really hard for us. And it was obviously a bit of a struggle for the humanity of Jesus because he prayed that prayer but he prayed to the Father in the garden and he asked if this cup could pass for me. That's what Jesus said. You say, well, what cup is he talking about? Jeremiah talked about the cup of God's wrath. The prophet Jeremiah talked about the, the cup of God's judgment. And I believe what Jesus was praying in the garden then was saying, Father, he knew he knew for him to be able to provide the cup of redemption through his blood that he had to have the cup of God's wrath poured out on him. He had to suffer. He had to carry the punishment and the weight of the sin of all mankind on himself. He, that cup had to come on him. And in that moment in the garden in his flesh, he prayed and said, Father, can, can this cup pass from me? That cup of wrath and suffering and pain. But then because he was one with the Father, 
in his, in his humanity, he, he wanted to know if there was a way to, to, to go around that. But then in his divinity and his oneness with the Father, he knew there was no other way. And so he submitted and he prayed to God and he said, nevertheless, not, my, not my, what my flesh wants in this moment, but your will, Father. Let your will be done. And so he stepped through and he walked through that suffering and obedience. And he did that so that that cup of redemption that's through his blood that we will, we will drink together and that we will celebrate that that could be ours. I think it's remarkable what Jesus did with the disciples that, and, and then what he does in, with us. What he did was he took all of the elements, these two important elements, the, the cup and the bread, and he took what they had always represented before, what God had already done, and he showed us how it was always meant to represent what God was about to do. It's not so much that it really changed meaning. I think from the very beginning when God instituted all of these elements and he gave the Israelites directions and says, when you observe this meal, this is how you do it. And he gave them the elements and he says, this is what you do and this is how you do it. it, was, it for then, they saw it was all about what he did in the past, but God knew. God knew that eventually every piece of that celebration was going to be all about what he had not done yet. And this was the moment that that was going to be fulfilled and Jesus was going to do that. There's also a detail in verse 19, if we back up a verse, where Luke mentions the bread. And he says that, it says that Jesus took the bread and broke it. There's another tradition of the Passover that I learned about that um, was fascinating to me. In the traditional Passover, there is a, a fabric, um, a napkin that is folded up that holds the matzah, which is the, which is the unleavened bread that they would use for the meal. But this, this napkin had three compartments in it. And there would be three different pieces of bread that would be wrapped up at the table. And at a certain point near the beginning of the Passover meal, the head of the table would open up those compartments, take out the center piece of bread. The center piece of bread represented the mediator. For then it was the priest. The ones who were the mediators between God and man was that, that center piece of bread. They would remove the center piece of bread from from the, the compartments. It would be set aside for another, another purpose, but then later in the meal, when it, when it comes to this point where Jesus breaks it, what would be done every Passover was that middle piece would be taken, taken back, pulled out again. It would be wrapped in a napkin or a cloth and crushed and broken into lots of pieces. And then they would open it up and take a piece of the broken bread and everyone at the table got a piece. This is what Jesus did. With This is the symbolism that Jesus applied to 
this. Jesus was, Jesus was becoming that centerpiece. He was that centerpiece of bread. He was the mediator. As the mediator between God and man, that centerpiece of bread would be pulled out. Jesus was our great high priest. He was the mediator. And that bread would be broken, wrapped in a cloth. Jesus' body would hang, would be beaten, hang on a cross. It would be broken and killed and wrapped in cloth. His body would be broken for the forgiveness in the eternal life of those who would believe in him and receive his sacrifice for their sins. So here's the last point that we'll wrap up with. Jesus thanked the Father for what would be accomplished through his suffering. You say, when Jesus prayed a prayer of thanks over that meal, what was he thanking God for? It was great suffering that he was about to walk into. But he knew what was coming. He not only knew the suffering that we, he was coming, but he knew the freedom that was coming because of that suffering. He knew the deliverance that was coming because of that suffering. He was thanking the Father for what would be accomplished through what he would do. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You say, what was Jesus' joy? It was you. How could Jesus endure that kind of suffering? Because of you. Because of me. How can we not come to his table and be grateful? How can, we, how can we come to the Lord's table and share Lord's Supper together, together and not be overwhelmed with a deep sense of thankfulness and gratitude for what's been done for us? So just like once a year, you'll gather with your family around a table and you'll have Thanksgiving. From this point on, I want you with me to change the way you consider Lord's Supper. Every time we share the Lord's Supper together, it's a Thanksgiving meal. Every time we come together and do this, our hearts should be full of gratitude and thankfulness for what's been done for us because it was because of the broken body and the shed blood and the suffering of Jesus that you and I have life that never ends.